This podcast is brought to you by C-Power. The definitive book for organizations that use energy is back for 2020. And guess what? That means like every organization because they all use energy and they all need to manage their energy spend. Last year, thousands of organizations and companies nationwide downloaded the book. It's called The State of Demand-Side Energy Management in North America. It's written by C-Power's energy experts. It's a market-by-market analysis of the issues, trends, and regulations that organizations like yours should understand in 2020 and beyond to make better decisions about your energy use and spend. And this year is turning out to be one of the most tumultuous in modern history, so it's more important than ever to get your handle on uh, how to manage your energy use. You can get your copy today at thecpowerway.com slash future. This week on What It Takes, Saul Griffith has a PhD in materials science and information theory. He's co-founded over a dozen companies, and now he's determined to prove that we already have what it takes to decarbonize the economy. You can do everything in the American economy with about 40% of the energy that we use today without shrinking anything and without doing anything that you would traditionally call an efficiency measure. You could then get extra wins on top of that. And that's, if we electrify everything. Electrify everything. Don't shrink the cars, just make them electric keep all of our creature comforts, you don't shrink them, and you can do it all electrically on about 40% of the energy we use today. Welcome to What It Takes, an interview series produced by Powerhouse and Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. In this series, we hear from founders and executives at the most influential clean energy companies, their backgrounds, their passions, their struggles, their deals, their management philosophies, their near-death experiences. In this episode, Powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch sits down with Saul Griffith, the founder and chief scientist at Other Lab. Other Lab is an R&D incubator and accelerator that helps pair startups in robotics and renewable energy with government labs and corporate investors. It's partnered with NASA, the Navy, the Department of Energy, Google, Facebook, GE, and Ford to help build and fund projects in energy, automation, and robotics in service of decarbonization. Saul co-founded Makani Wind, the high-altitude wind company that was bought by Google, and the tracker company Sunfolding, among many others. And he brings the grit of an entrepreneur, the rigor of a scientist, and the dirty mouth of a sailor to his passionate work on climate change. A word of warning here, there is some gratuitous swearing in this interview, so you can choose now whether to listen around your kids, or it can be an opportunity to teach them about Australians. In this episode, Emily talks with Saul about how he's taken on a new mission to convince people in power that we actually have what we need right now to decarbonize large swaths of the economy. This conversation was recorded at the Powerhouse headquarters in Oakland, California, right before the pandemic. Feels like a bygone era. But we are still going to be recording What It Takes episodes going forward, and on May 15th, We'll have a live episode online at 8 p.m. Eastern with Gia Schneider, the co-founder and CEO of Natal Energy. So click on through to the link in the show notes for that conversation. And now for this week's conversation between Emily Kirsch and Saul Griffith. Enjoy. Saul Griffith is the founder and chief scientist of Other Lab, a independent research and design lab in San Francisco bringing clean energy and robotic solutions to market. Through his work at Other Labs, Saul has co-founded the Compressed Air single-access solar tracking company Sunfolding, the Airborne Wind Pioneer Makani Power, and the DIY community website Instructables, along with many more. Saul has multiple degrees in material science and mechanical engineering and completed his PhD in programmable assembly and self-replicating machines at MIT. In 2007, Saul was named a MacArthur genius. Saul, welcome Aren't we going to, to go long form on my background? No, no, anyway. we're done. We're done. This? <laughs> that was it. There's a lot more we could have covered, but, but very happy to I have you on the show. I hate that bit a lot. I, Actually, this whole show is that bit This entire, th- Yeah, yeah. We're, that was minute one of 60. So here we go. Um, a couple facts about you. You grew up in Sydney and you swear a lot. I think those two go hand in hand. Fuck yeah. <laughs> it's out of the way. Now I'm relaxed. It's going to be easy. <laughs> I was also told this is a drinking game and I didn't see anyone drink shots. You told me. It, there we are. Okay. The there we are. <laughs> 
Uh, growing up, your mom was an artist painting the Australian natural Fuck environment, yeah. especially, <laughs> especially endangered species. Your dad was a textile engineer and professor. Yes. He ran the Department of Wool and Pastoral Sciences at University of New South Wales. By your own admission, you were a terrible student in school. So I'm curious, how does a bad student from Australia go on to be an inventor and a serial founder? And I want to start by asking specifically, what was your childhood like up until you went to college? Um, you know, I, I would love to have a more dramatic, difficult, clawed my claw up by the shoelaces childhood, but I had a magical childhood. My mother was a cross between Mary Poppins and David Attenborough. <laughs> um, and my father is probably a little Rick Moranis in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Um, and so, you know, half of our house was an art studio. The other half was... Uh, a workshop and we had sort of attached bedrooms in corners <laughs> and um, we spent all of our summer holidays in Australia's uh, national parks and, uh, you know, internationally listed incredible areas. So um, I had a lovely childhood. I have a wonderful sister. I mean, now we're 10,000 miles apart. We can say we're wonderful. But, <laughs> uh, Distance can help. Yeah. You started your college education in Australia, receiving a bachelor's in metallurgical engineering, which is the study of metals, at the University of New South Wales. You did a year abroad here at Berkeley and then took six months off where you bought a one-way ticket to Australia, uh, to Alaska. You stayed there. Yeah, you were there for six months. So I was going to ask you a question about what you did there and what you learned, but instead I'm just going to read you some notes about that time in your life. My notes include drove trucks illegally, fought forest fire, spirit quest, scare with bears, swam in the Arctic, and the last one is greenhouses for pot, legal pot. Can you, can you explain that and then what did you learn? It was definitely not legal pot. Um... And I didn't even smoke any of it at that, that time. Uh, so I wanted to go for a swim in the, Antar in the Arctic because I, I was like, I should, you know, I'm 19. I should try and swim in all the seven seas. Um, and I was in a hostel in the middle of Alaska and I met a German girl called Bettina who was a midwife in the dark forest, black forest. I don't know why I remember that detail. And I said, we should go to the Arctic for a swim. And she's like, how will we get there? I'm like, we'll hitchhike. Uh, and um, it's really, sometimes it's easy to hitchhike in Alaska because basically if you don't pick up a hitchhiker, they can die because it's pretty cold and rough there. So the culture is generally unfavorable, but one or two cars comes per day on many of the roads. So it's sort of a lot of waiting. Anyway, the ride we got out of town... Um, went to a place called Manly Hot Springs, town of 88 people, and it's a four-hour drive, so you get to know the guy who owns the truck, and then he, Manly Hot Springs is on a hot spring, and he had a bunch of greenhouses. The two closest to the road grew tomatoes, and the one way up that we helped fix mm -hmm. didn't grow tomatoes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well said. Uh, so you finished your, your metallurgical engineering degree. You went to Scotland and Zimbabwe for a while before enrolling in a PhD program at the University of Sydney. You dropped out of that program to do a PhD at MIT focused on self-replicating machines. Why did you drop out of the first PhD? And then what was it like working on self-replicating machines at MIT? Um, so I yeah, chased the girl around the world. Um, and that's where I was, why I was in Scotland and... Um, Zimbabwe and then went back to Sydney to try and make bridges out of composite materials because as a material scientist I was always interested in as a metallurgist and a material scientist interested in what comes after metals which was at that time going to be composites and we wanted to figure out how to build bridges out of fiberglass and then about six months in I realized that the infrastructure industry lets you like build one bridge out of fiberglass and you wait 25 years and prove that it lasts before you get to build your second one and so I didn't really want to go into that industry of course, I heard some groans here. It sounds a little bit like going into clean tech, right? <laughs> so the irony is I arrived back in infrastructure, but I quit that program to get out of infrastructure. And because I know Emily wants me to say this, so I went to MIT, which was great. I actually went there to work on e-ink. Do you remember? Because the, my reasoning for going to work on e-ink was that... What's e-ink? Electronic ink. So it's the, the display on Kindle is how you know it. Um, I had been reading landfill statistics, as you do when you're, that's your hobby. And I knew in Australia, two things about landfill statistics that I remember at that time in Australia, was 50% was paper and cardboard and cellulosic, which would decompose into methane, 
which was a greenhouse gas. So I was like, oh, you could make electronic paper and then you would save all of the methane from the decomposition. The other fact I remember is that in 2009 was the first year that adult diapers outweighed baby diapers in landfill in the United States. Somebody tweet that. Um, it depends on your. <laughs> it depends on your perspective. Depends. Oh, um, somebody tweet that. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I think both of them was like two percent. It's a significant thing. Anyway, um, I went to MIT to try and work on electronic ink. The day I arrived, I mixed a batch actually with a co-founder of another clean tech company, Brent. We do thermally adaptive materials, but, but he and I mixed a batch of e-ink. That was the last batch I ever mixed because the following week uh, e-ink spun out of MIT, became a startup and then went on to things. So that I transitioned to working on self-replicating machines and we were, it was really the interface of information theory and material science. So how do you put enough information into a material system that the material system has properties like life? How could you make synthetic things replicate themselves? And I had a bet with my advisor that if I could get a paper in nature and a paper in science on that topic before I graduated, that I would be allowed to title my te thesis Machines That Fuck Themselves. <laughs> <laughs> we, got the, we got the nature paper, but sadly it goes in the, uh, it's in the MIT library as uh, self-replicating machines. Not as good. Yeah, not, not as good. Nearly. Nearly. Um, how did your work at MIT shape your thinking on innovation? Um... I don't know. I like. I just remember, honestly, you know, I felt like I was a boy from the country who cheated my way into MIT through the tradesman's entrance. Um, I honestly think they accepted me because um, I'm fairly sure. So I grew up with an engineer father and a mother who built, used printing presses to make her art. So I had built numerous printing presses with my father and knitting and textile machines. And so they probably confused that with understanding the origin of information theory and textile <laughs> machines. And that I knew how to build printing machines for printing microelectronics, which is what they wanted. So they let me in on the back of, you know, basically hands-on trade skills. But I got let out the front door with a PhD. So I remember MIT as being kind of this amazing anarchic place. There's a really genuinely lovely attitude of just get it done. Um, Maybe my favourite memory of that, I thought while I was in Cambridge I should take a class at Harvard because I heard it was a good school. Uh, so I took a class at um, the business school at Harvard at the same time I was taking a class with Jerry Sussman in the AI lab at, at MIT. And I had a full research load as well, so I would just skip classes. And I remember I skipped class, one week I've skipped all the classes because I was trying to finish some research work. The next week I go into Jerry's class and Jerry's like, what amazing thing were you doing that was more important? And like as an invitation to say, oh my God, I actually got my first machines to self-replicate and then the whole class became about that. And then you know, later that day I go up to Harvard to take the, the, the class at the business school and I was berated because mm -hmm. their class was more important than all else. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in, to me that sort of was the lovely thing about MIT is that the assumption was you were there and if you were missing class it was because there was something better going on and I and I it was just that that's what I loved about that. In 2004 after graduating from MIT you moved to the Bay Area to start something called Squid Labs. Why the Bay Area and what was Squid Labs? Squid Labs was four or five guys from MIT who didn't know how to start a company um, and honestly, we were like, well, we, you know, we didn't want to all go and get a job for the man. And it was still the era, if you didn't have student debt, that you could go and imagine just roughing it until you figured out life. And the Bay Area was chosen because we took a map and we were trying to figure out, okay, where is capital, where is talent, and where is wind? Because we were all windsurfers and kite surfers. And the, the, you know, the multiplier on wind was high. <laughs> <laughs> And so that sort of leaves you with Hood River or the Bay Area or maybe North Carolina out of banks, which is not really great for capital. So that's why we're in the Bay Area. Your first few years in the Bay Area, you started a couple companies, including 
uh, Instructables, the DIY community website, which you sold to Autodesk in 2011. Uh, but another company you launched, the power-generating airborne kite company, Makani Power, had a different outcome. Google invested $10 million in Makani in 2006, another $5 million in 2008. In 2013, Google acquired Makani, and the company's been operating for seven years. But just last week, they announced that they were withdrawing their funding and effectively shutting down the company. So two questions. Uh, one is, can you talk about the technology behind Makani? Why did you start it? And then two is, what happened with Google? Cool. Number two. Well, well, let's start with number one. <laughs> What's behind door let's number start, two? Let's start with number one. <laughs> uh, number one. I mean, it was 2006, remember? And it was Al Gore and like we were actually going to address climate change. And you, in 2006, you could be audacious. And we were already all interested in kite surfing. And I had actually built a weird kite-based wind turbine on the roof of the media lab at MIT. And so we were in this place. And then... Uh, struck up friendship with Larry and uh, Sergey, and they gave us the opportunity to to build this thing. And at that time, we didn't really even know what it was. So it was, it was kind of a beautifully motivated, like, we trust you that you'll assemble the smart people to figure out the right answer to extract energy from this large resource. The, basically, the only thing that was known about high-altitude wind power at that time was that there's a lot of wind up there. <laughs> Um, and so we had a blank sheet of paper and did a lot of physics and a lot of math and, and had a really wonderful small team figuring out the answer. And um, we also knew it was, I remember at the, the, one of the financing meetings at Google, they're like, how much money is this going to take and how, and how long is it going to take? And, you know, 2006, like $100 million in 10 years, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I think turned out to be true-ish. Um, and we made it work. And if, honestly, I'm unbelievably proud of that whole project, all the people that worked on it. Um, if you haven't seen the YouTube videos, they put one, launched one in the North Sea last year. Like, I think, honestly, it is probably no project since the Apollo project was as technically audacious mm -hmm. as that. And so, you know, on every vector, on every discipline, that was crazy hard. And, and people, we pulled it off and we made it work. But in 2006, the kite price of commercial wind was 20, 25 cents a kilowatt hour. And so we were like, we believe, and we built a you know, two-page model. And we're like, ah, oh, yeah, we think we can hit three or four cents a kilowatt hour, which, honestly, Makani is probably still on track to hit. But the wind industry is at, dun-dun-dun, four or five cents a kilowatt hour. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's on a pathway. Mm -hmm. So you know, the ratio of risk to beating the incumbent now is too low. So I think the nice way to think about that story is we lost that battle the world would be better if, the, if we gave more opportunities to crazy young people to shoot for the moon like that. But we actually are winning the war, right? And actually, I think McCartney won lots of wars. The number of people that got trained on that project to be ambitious and audacious and the number of startups that have come out from mm -hmm. ex-employees is really kind of incredible. And we win the war because, you know, wind is at four or five cents and beating natural gas in nearly every market. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm trying not to think of it poorly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's a good outcome. Yeah. Um, any more you want to say about what happened with Google? 2008 was terrible. 2009 was worse. And a lot of people were bad people. So, so if, you're, if you're riding high on your startup money right now and you're in the top of the American economy, just remember, they, they won't be so nice next year. <laughs> fair, fair warning. Um, so I think your, your, your own words... You describe leaving Makani as being ousted, and that was on Earth Day, which there's some kind of cruel irony in that, and you had a four-week-old son. Yep, that was a low point. <laughs> uh, so it turns out, um, you know, I'll give you enough details that um, hopefully won't offend anyone. Google itself's share price had fallen in half because the global financial crisis happened. Um, we had delivered our deliverable that triggered a $10 million investment tranche. Um, they, the part of Google that had made the investment was in the process of being shut down. So they said, well, we're not gonna give you that money even though you know, we made the promise. We're like, we hit the target, we hit it three months, we were under budget and we were ahead of schedule. Anyway, so when, they, when your investor says no and you, it's like the middle of the investment apocalypse, Right, I'm flying all over the world to try and raise money to keep it alive because we now all of a sudden the, inv the lead investor wasn't going to in 
you know, meet their commitments, you make threats to your investors that you regret and then you're ousted on Earth Day with a <laughs> one-month-old one son <clears throat> and a wife who is an angel and tolerant and didn't mind that you then shared one paycheck with three people for the next six months. Yeah. And you met your wife your last year at MIT, is that right? Uh, midway through, we met for 15 minutes on a balcony. And whatever I said, she remembered, because three years later I met her at a tech conference and she remembered me on my first name. Actually, I know why she remembered me, because after the party I said to my roommate, who was that hot number? And um, my roommate, Laurie Santos, who's actually now kind of a big wig in social sciences, um, she's like, oh, that's Arwen O'Reilly, she's the shiznit, which was code. <laughs> oh, we know shiznit. The shiz she is the shiznit. And... Um, I said, is she dating anyone? And Laurie's like, yes. And apparently I said, you know, boyfriends aren't mountains, they can be moved. <laughs> um, Laurie's undergraduate research assistant, a guy called jo John Flumbaum, was like a blockmate or something with Arwen. And I think the boyfriends aren't mountains, they can be moved story became legend amongst them. And so Arwen, was, I think I was remembered because of that. Anyway, it turns out you wait three years and the mountain moves itself. <laughs> gotcha so uh so you've been ousted from makani it's earth day you have a four-week-old son and the day after you're ousted from makani the day after earth day you start other lab what made you start it how did you start it what made you start it what enabled it to come into existence uh we actually had a darpa contract at that time working on programmable materials which was in some respects a darpa program following on from the work I did for my PhD. Um, the DARPA contracts are interesting. They follow the PI, not the contracted organization. So I was able to take that with us, but it was a tiny, tiny, we were a subcontractor to MIT. But we were able to continue that work uh, and basically it was enough to pay one paycheck and a, a guy called Jim McBride and a guy called Jack Backrack, and we were all like, either about to be young dads or we were all trying to buy homes. And the terrible dishonest thing we did was like each, because basically that was the, the bottom of the real estate market in the Bay Area. So we would write the paycheck to whoever was trying to get the loan application for the mortgage <laughs> that month. So we all got to get in the market at the bottom of nice. the market on the basis of one paycheck. This is the one paycheck you're splitting three yeah. ways. I don't, can I be arrested post fact for that? Statue of limitations. Yeah, it's, we're, we're golden. But, um, you know, there was no employment to be found at that time. So that was the best idea we had. It was like, well, let's tough it out on this thing. Let's try to have some ideas. RPE was coming into existence. We wrote five proposals to RPE for the original open program. Um, we did more DARPA work. We, you know, took lots of tiny contracts. It was hard and I know one of the contracts that you applied for originally through ARPA-E was for Sunfolding, the compressed air single access solar tracking company. And ARPA-E said, if this was so good, somebody would have done it already, so no. Yeah, this is the worst um, uh, feedback you want to your grant proposal. This is such a good idea that if it worked, somebody would have already done it. <laughs> like, that's not helpful. Nobody's done it. Um, so... Uh, the funny story there is we took that, I'm not kidding you, that proposal and, you know, a solar tracker, what is it? It's a really shitty robot that can only do one thing like that. And so we just took the proposal and we cut out that we did word search and replace solar for the word robot. So instead of saying to make cheap solar, you need cheap actuators, we said to make cheap robots, you need cheap actuators. This is how you make cheap actuators. And DARPA gave us money to build it. Um, which, it's like asking another parent. Yeah, and it's hilarious. We actually convinced DARPA. Um, we needed some, because we, we intended fully to use that money to d prove the concept for solar tracking, but we had to have some silly demo for DARPA. So we proposed that we would build a walking inflatable elephant. <laughs> and we did, and it was amazing. And so we built this like six foot high, walking inflatable elephant. So a robot that has no mechanical parts. It's just a walking bounce house and you just by moving the pressure. So I have this hilarious video of this like slow walking inflatable uh, elephant. Um, so we got to build 
the technology for sunfolding on that, and then we we now we had a, a, a really cool demo, and we could prove that you could get the appropriate level of accuracy for the tracking and the appropriate stiffness and everything. And we were then able to use that to leverage to get more DOE money. But because we'd built a cool robot, we had to get into the robot business as well. And then after you're in the robot business, you realize that exoskeletons are just wearable robots. So we now actually have a company called Canvas that is using some of that technology in the construction industry. They're doing really well. And we have an exoskeleton company called Rome Robotics that is doing really well. They just got a, a medical device approved. So... Um, you know, I actually don't even really like robots, and my son is scared of them. Like, he's John, he's going to be John Connor, for sure. <laughs> um, but we're in the robot business. Actually, I know why he's scared of them. We went to Mecha Robotics Christmas party in when he was two or three, and they had the really spooky-looking uh, face robot with one arm. And I think if you're a three-year-old and there's, mm -hmm. like, a human-ish-looking thing that mm -hmm. has not, yeah, mm -hmm. scared the willies out of it. <laughs> the damage I have done to my children. Um, so we've had the co-founder <coughs> and CTO of Sunfolding, Layla Madrone, on the show. So there's an entire episode about Sunfolding if people are interested in learning more. But Layla is amazing and that is. episode is amazing. Oh, yeah. thank you. She's she's a phenomenal founder in person. Um, tell us a little bit more about Sunfolding and where they are today. Uh, so Sunfolding is now deploying, you know, megawatts per week of solar trackers. Um, we are part of the reason that uh, solar tracker is about 15% of any project. Um, we've taken, you know, not quite half the cost out of it, but it's part of the reason that industrial solar is now going in at a dollar a watt or less, which pencils that, you know, we're signing contracts. I know Gwen is here, so if she's shaking her head, I'm lying. I think we're bidding on things that are like two, two and a half cents per kilowatt hour PPAs, which is just insane to me that you know we've we've won. Mm -hmm. It's so cheap, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, but they're still in the. It's you know, it's it also Sunfolding is doing great, but it has been brutal. Like financing that company for ten years through, you know, it's just. Clean tech is not sexy. It's not. It's hard to raise for um, capital intensive. It's all the things that sil that this Bay Area Silicon Valley doesn't like. Mm -hmm. But I'm so proud. We're in the game. We, you know, great team um, delivering product. We're onto our second generation product now. Like, how many Bay Area companies make mm -hmm. it onto their second generation? I think. Mm -hmm. Very few, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. crushing it. <laughs> Over the past 10 years, Other Lab has raised $70 million in research and design contracts. You've spun out 12 companies which have collectively raised over $100 million and employ about 1,000 people. Other Lab itself has never taken a dollar in investor capital. In fact, you've said no investor should invest in Other Lab. How have you managed without investor capital and why not raise them so you can do all of this more, more of it faster? Uh, I don't think I don't, well Idea Lab was maybe the one time in history where you could raise money for a research lab um, and it's unclear how well that worked out but there doesn't seem to be appetite for a pitch that sounds like we're going to put a bunch of ill-disciplined people in a room and do some crazy <laughs> shit uh, and you know I can't tell you what the product is, so you know it's a it's a difficult <laughs> it's a difficult pitch for an R and D lab to to take capital. Um, and we learned early on, it was actually the principal lesson at Squid Labs, that Squid Labs itself can't exist. We should divide it into the things that are individually sound-focused and can get what, you know, what they want done. So the reason I think, you know, it, maybe at this point Other Lab has proven that it can do it. We actually raised a, our own small venture fund. That looks like it will do pretty well. It was obliged to invest in everything we did. Mm. So I think we found models where we can bring capital in to do those things and expand. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> um, it bores me when it goes to capital. <laughs> uh, just why? Why? Why That's not? why. That's why they won't invest. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. Just why? Yeah. Why not? Why not raise? But I think you answered it. Uh, we would love to. I mean, we are capital starved on every front. Um, and actually, what was really interesting experience is way easier to raise a venture fund than it is to raise a, a similar amount of money for a technology company. You know this. I do. Yeah. Uh, dirty secret for any of you out there. If you're trying to raise money and failing, just raise your own fund instead. <laughs> <laughs> Nervous laughter. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but yeah, we're probably going to raise another fund this year. Uh, and we're individually raising right now on three or four different projects. Mm-hmm. So, you know, unfortunately, I just, you know, I hate raising money. It's the worst. Mm. But I've just bought myself the opportunity to have that wonderful opportunity much more often. I'm excited for you. Uh, so you tonight brought with you this uh, six foot by 30 foot printout of this Sankey diagram that RPE funded other lab to create. Sankey meaning a flow diagram where the width of the arrows represents the flow, the quantity flow. Um, how has, t- tell us about this research and how has it formed your, informed your work at other lab? Uh, this tonight's episode is brought to you by failed proposals to the Department of Energy. So we <laughs> we proposed when ARPA E was starting. This is one of the five proposals we wrote in two thousand eight. Like, if you're going to spend the taxpayers' money on energy R and D, maybe you should know how energy is used. That was the we didn't get that funded at that time. <laughs> Seemed reasonable, right? Uh, so um, I had a hobby and interest in this anyway. Um, and there's probably people in this audience, I'm like super energy data obsessed. I spent one year of my life weighing every object that went in and out of our house so that I knew the embodied energy of my entire life. So at one point I knew how many kilograms of books we had, what the kilogram per week flow rate for um, the New York Times is, you know, all my wife, she's a saint. She is, <laughs> she is the shiznit. Um, that's that's what shiznit means. She tolerate your sort of OCD engineering stuff. Um, anyway, uh, we eventually we we did a lot of this work without Arpri, but then we finally convinced them that you know it would really be a nice idea to do the highest resolution possible flow diagram of energy in the economy, and you would use that not only to prioritize energy R and D, but also to as a very powerful tool for doing decarbonisation scenarios or whatever energy scenario you want. So that poster is there. Um, That required reading, you know, uh, there's maybe eight or nine federal data sets. Um, It required reading maybe 50,000 pages of footnotes to find out the origin of all of this stuff. Um, It was an amazing experience. Like you actually deeply go into the history of how the Department of Energy was raised why this chart even exists. So approximately, you know, oil crisis lands on Nixon's desks. Nixon's like, holy shit, what do we know? There was no Department of Energy at that time. There was something called the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy. Some guy who turned out to be Al Gore's father was on that um, committee. They were tasked with figuring out how to, what was, how was it phrased? Um, we need a diagram that can show a reasonably intelligent person how to understand the American energy dilemma in under one hour, where reasonably intelligent was proxy for congressperson. <laughs> I may have the word reasonable wrong, but busy person, not even reasonably busy. Anyway, um, so that's they started finding that out. Then they created the Energy Information Administration and the Department of Energy went through a couple of iterations. So this went through Ford and into Carter and then we, we had this stuff. But we actually designed this chart in the 70s to solve an efficiency problem because conceivably, you know, the problem in the 1970s oil crisis was how do we, you know, we've got 10% of our, for, our energy comes in the form of foreign oil and it's embargoed, so what do we do? And you could solve that crisis in the 70s with efficiency. If you made every car 10% more efficient, you made every home 10% more efficient, because at that time a lot of boilers were run from oil, you'd solve that problem. This is why we got cafe fuel standards, which aren't a terrible idea, but they're an efficiency thing. This is why we got Energy Star appliances. Not a bad idea again. But maybe, unfortunately, this is why we got efficiency as kind of the the thing that we're going to use to try and solve any energy problem, which, of course, is not the climate problem that we now have. We need a complete transformation. You can't efficiency your way to zero, or we'd be sitting up here before you're naked, and that would be terrible. Um, so Wait, I missed that. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you go efficiency all the way to we use zero energy, I won't be wearing textiles, and there won't be you know a microphone here, gotcha. and this would be a fairly okay. primitive event. Okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Fortunately, it would be dark, so you may not be able to see my hairy back here naked. Yeah. But um, efficiency doesn't get you to where we want. and so. It, but we are really still stuck in that narrative when we think about problems of solving climate change. So um, 
also we baked in a bunch of really crazy things into this um, to, you know, raise your hand if you're a self-described energy nerd. Awesome. First audience with that many hands that I can tell this story about. So uh, the, I'll, I'll, I'll spoil the story with the lead. I'm going to – solving climate change is 10% easier after you finish tonight than before we, you arrived. So we had to reconcile how to put hydroelectricity in primary energy units for this chart in the 1970s. Primary energy is tons of coal, barrels of oil, cubic feet of natural gas. What is it for hydroelectricity? Is it the height of the dam? Is it the catchment area of the dam? Is it the volume of the dam? No, the logic they used was, let's take the nameplate capacity and multiply it by the average efficiency of the fossil fuel plant that would be bought online if there was a two-year drought. So what that means is you take the amount of electricity coming out of the dam and you multiply it by three because all of your coal plants are really inefficient, like about a third efficient, and then the amount that your report of primary energy is giant. We then cut and paste that because most legislation is made by cut and paste when we started to get enough solar and enough wind and enough geothermal onto this chart. Um, we treated, there's a similar error but not quite the same for nuclear. And so actually, you know, nine quads-ish of the energy that we think we use in America is an accounting aberration. Woo! <laughs> Not only is solar at two cents and wind at four cents, but we need less energy than we think. Mm. So you can then use this kind of diagram um, to go through all of the things. Like you go through the thought experiment, what if we electrify the whole economy? And that's actually kind of what's represented on the wall here. And it turns out you can do everything in the American economy with about 40% of the energy that we use today without shrinking anything and without doing anything that you would traditionally call an efficiency measure. You could then get extra wins on top of that. And if that's, we electrify everything. Electrify everything. Don't shrink the cars, just make them electric. Don't ban McMansions. I mean, you may not like this for other environmental reasons as a, a recipe. However, it may be a more bipartisan way to sell solving climate change. Um, but, you know, we keep our big homes, we keep all of our creature comforts, you don't shrink them, and you can do it all electrically on about 40% of the energy we use today. Then all of these top-line numbers that people talk about of how much it's going to cost to transform the economy, they're kind of using the wrong denominator. So there's a lot of consequences from this that are good news stories that mean we may already be there in terms of solving climate change. And then... I don't think this is what was meant to happen, but this is becoming, uh, I'm actually gonna go to DC kind of on the back of this and the consequences of that, because um, I don't know about you all, but I think we should shoot for one and a half degrees and try and decarbonize like batshit crazy right now. Urgency. Um, thank you. Uh, and the reality is it's now requires a wartime effort, right? So um, the, if you, follow the emissions trajectories and you understand there's this concept called committed emissions. So existing machines today, you know, if you bought a car yesterday, you're going to burn oil in it until that car dies. If you bought a natural gas peaker plant yesterday, you're going to amortize it for 40 years. Existing fossil fuel powered machinery today, if it's all allowed to live out the until end of life, will take us to about somewhere between one and a half and two degrees, probably closer to two. What does that mean? Starting tomorrow, when you wake up, anything that anyone in the world buys that would have used fossil fuels now needs to be a non-fossil fuel powered thing. So that to me, like a carbon tax can influence an adoption curve, but we need 100% adoption immediately. So we now need to like really start to think about going to war. And so then I've decided this year for the next three months to go to war in DC um, against the whole establishment. No, I don't know. Anyway, we're going to try and tell the positive stories because I actually think it is a positive story on how um, this would inform uh, how America would completely decarbonize. And actually, you know, the reality is I think it's still possible to completely decarbonize by 2030 and save everyone money. We just got to start thinking about it correctly. We're going to take a quick pause here from Saul's journey to talk about our sponsor, SeaPower. And SeaPower has this new book that can help organizations understand the most pressing questions of the day. Stuff like, 
How have recent wildfires in California affected that state's drive for renewables? What did Texas learn from an August that featured the state's first demand response events in almost five years? How's New York faring in meeting the lofty renewable energy ambitions of the reforming energy vision? You do not have a crystal ball when it comes to making decisions about your organization's energy use and what's going to happen in politics and in markets, but you can get the best information to help you make decisions, and that's why Power is here to help. The book is called The 2020 State of Demand-Side Energy Management in North America, and last year, thousands of organizations downloaded the book, written by Power's energy experts. This year, Power picks up where they left off with a market-by-market analysis of the issues, trends, and regulations that organizations should understand in 2020 to make better decisions about their energy use and spend. You can find that book at thecpowerway.com slash future. Are you optimistic? Hold your applause. Hold Let's your get applause. an answer to this question first. <laughs> I, uh, am I optimistic? Uh, in the most, by the most absurd method. So the optimism comes from what I just told you is nearly impossible given the political climate, given how hard that is. But... Um, America uniquely, weirdly, has pulled off the impossible multiple times as emergencies, right? So John Muir thought the emergency of losing America's public lands was so worthwhile that he abducted the pre- President Roosevelt for three days and took him up in Yosemite and impressed upon him how important it was. Are to- you going to abduct someone? <laughs> uh I think Teddy Roosevelt might have been a better president to abduct if you're going to sit around a campfire for three days. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, the, the original New Deal was an emergency uh, and we invented, uh, you know, public works programs, but perhaps even more importantly, Fannie Mae was the invention of the modern mortgage and the modern mortgage was how was what built the middle class in America and what enabled the suburbs and all these other things and probably had more to do with the shape of the 20th century and what the American dream was than anything else. So we invented financing to solve an emergency. For World War II, different kind of emergency, right? Roughly, Hitler goes into France. They beat back the English at Dunkirk. Churchill calls Roosevelt, says we're fucked. Um, Those words. Roughly. Uh, <laughs> I think he said, if you don't come and help us, the Germans are going to take our Navy and come to you, right? So Roosevelt was then figured out what to do. Roosevelt called Ford. Ford said, eh, not yet. I kind of would like to sell some cars to the Germans mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. Um, then he called GM or somehow figured out and he found this guy called Knudsen. Uh, Knudsen was a you know auto industry guy, brought him to Washington. He was the first of the dollar a year men. It was the 40s, so they were only men. Um, and then he basically rallied American industry and they invented the cost plus contract. So they basically said, here's what we need. We need airplanes, we need boats, we need tanks, we need bullets, we need guns. If your company can make anything on this list, we will cover your costs and give you a 7% profit guaranteed. All of American industry was like, hey, 7% profit for sure. Um, and then, you know, the unbelievable... The war was won before we needed the atomic bomb actually on production on the production side. And so that's what we need now. So um, actually what we're really trying to go to Washington for is like how do you build that modern analog for today um, to solve this emergency, the climate emergency? And you know, let's in let's look at America's history of solving emergencies and try and draw the best lessons and then, you know, shoot for the moon. In all of this, starting other lab and and Makani and Sunfolding and many other companies and doing this work and now going to DC. Um, what's been the hardest part? It's been a great adventure. Um, sleeping enough, keeping healthy as I would as healthy as I would like. Um, I definitely haven't used as much of the wind resource of the Bay Area as I intended to. <laughs> this is for kite surfing. Yeah. Um, so you know, honestly, balancing desire to have family, desire to be healthy with the demands of um, starting companies, doing these things. Actually, in my dark moments at the moment when I'm not happy, I'm like, oh my God, how does anyone who's 46 and have two kids compete with the fucking millennials? <laughs> like, cause they, you know, they're up for 14 hours a day and they're doing it and they don't have to do diapers or all the other stuff. It's 
but we will beat them. <laughs> That's the word time work effort smarter, that we're talking work about. Work smarter, work smarter, work smarter, work yeah. smarter. Um, so with, with everything you've started as well, obviously you're leading other lab, but you haven't joined one of the companies as CEO. Why not? Uh, I've in, interim CEO occasionally in a pinch. Um, also, you know, after I, you know, CEO in McCartney wasn't a great experience and then I had kids and I kind of think being a CEO of a startup with young children shortchanges both the kids and the startup. I think that's a problem with the larger work culture that like balancing these things is sane. But like I didn't really want to do that. I'm not sure that being the CEO was the best use of my time and it feels unbalanced that I'm making a good choice helping people who are better CEOs than me be CEOs and I sit on the board until I'm no longer useful, happy to step down. But like I think that role is better. I you know, if the right thing if the only way to get something done right now was to that I was passionate about was to be CEO, I would do it. I'm more of like whatever it takes. I don't need I don't care for the titles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned being a parent. Um, what has it been like being a parent, a partner, a founder, all at the same time? Um, hard, but great. I mean, kids, they, they, you know, you can't say anything bad about having kids. It's amazing. My wife is amazing. So I've been super, you know, on, on all vectors, that's all lucky. It's like, it's lovely. Um, I do, it's just hard. There's just too much time in the, with the companies. Were there any moments you thought you'd fail? I still feel like I'm failing every day. I feel like I've failed this interview since I started talking. No, you're doing I'm great. totally imposter syndrome all day, really? every day. Oh, my God, really? yes. Really? Yes. No, not that much. A little bit. <laughs> Had you. <laughs> um, I was having this moment. I was like, wow, I really I, I share that feeling. But no, we don't share that feeling. <laughs> okay, okay. I see how it is. There, no, no, it's totally a piece of me. that like, No, I honestly, I do. I have all the dark moments. I'm like, oh, you know, everything's, you know, List this last week, McCartney is you know shutting down. You're like, oh, you know we, and then you you litigate how you did it, and like, oh, we made a, this technical decision that was basically political in 2009, and it had these consequences on cost. And you can go back and think about that for everything you've done. Like everything could have been faster, better, cheaper. So you know, I am always questioning. Um, I was just laughing about that because one of my employees tonight was like, are you, are you nervous about speaking tonight? And I was like, um, not anymore because I actually do way too much speaking. And, and he's like, why not? And I was like, I don't know. And I don't know what happened. About two years ago, I was giving a talk somewhere fancy and in the middle of the talk, I was nervous. And then I swore, which was great. I said, fuck, audience laughed. And then I relaxed and I was like, oh my God, I controlled them. <laughs> And uh, that was really liberating. So I actually yeah. find speaking is not the, the thing that I now feel. I, 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 I leveled up, as my son would say, um, on speaking. So that's not the thing I feel bad about. I do feel bad that I'm failing on fundraising all the time. Like everyone in our organization deserves more resources and higher pay and all of those things. So, you know, all of that. And this time you just swore at the beginning of the episode, which... See, Seems that's like the helped. trick. Yeah. That's why I don't feel that anymore. You just get it straight out and then you're like, ah, see, it's not so bad. No one's going to arrest me for swearing. <laughs> when I asked you what lesson has taken you the longest to learn, your answer was, if I admitted that I've learned lessons that would admit weakness and I'm Australian and we're chiseled and we don't show weakness. Um, so I'm going to just ask again, uh, what lesson... <laughs> What lesson took the longest to learn? I shed one tear as a child. It was, <laughs> it was Christmas. I was eight. My Santa Claus bought me an airplane that was, um, it was before radio control and had two strings. And you had to f- spin yourself in circles and fly this thing with two control lines. And it had a terrible, unreliable one-cylinder 20cc engine. So... My father and my uncle thought this was way too dangerous for me because, you know, you could take your finger off when you started up because it's terrible to start. Anyway, I sat there watching as my father and uncle flew and then crashed that airplane. I shed one tear and it was beaten out of me and I haven't cried since. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're moving on from lessons learned. Um, how has your leadership style changed over the course of your career? Um, 
if it has. I'm much more hands off. I don't think I'm a, I think I'm a good leader and a terrible manager. Um, so I've stopped trying to manage. And so, you know, that means hire people who don't need a lot of management or, you know, as teams get big enough to really actually, that only works up until maybe six to 10 people then hire good management. Um, so I think I learned that lesson and just, I don't, you know, if I'm running the calendar, we're, we're in trouble. <laughs> so I don't, yeah. I just don't do the things I now know I'm not good at, which is a long list. So I don't do much. <laughs> <laughs> I would argue otherwise. Um, for this work in DC, how big of a shift is this in your life? I know in part you wanted to have this conversation to talk more about what you're doing in DC. Is this you, is this you leaving other lab? You said you're moving to DC, but for a short period of time. Like, how significant is this in the life and career of Salt Griffith? I, you know, everything's... I, I literally am still the teenager who's like, hey, it's one way to go to Alaska. What could go wrong? I've got $800. <laughs> My mother thought it was a terrible idea. But, you know, I, I worked on a fishing trawler and I helped a guy build a marijuana, you know, greenhouse and stuff. So Legal. I earned enough money to, to survive. But, like, uh, so I'm a little bit like the adventure is of, of this is good. I'm interested in learning how the political process works. I feel it is genuinely important. Like, we... I guess in my few trips to DC to talk about people who are writing energy or climate policy or thinking about it or advising on it, like I'm underwhelmed with the, they, they're not coming from the front lines of the solutions, like the people in this room. So it's like, holy cow, the people in this room need to go to DC and say, hey guys, we can do this. We need to be the industrial coalition that's like, we can get this job, we can get it done in 10 years. But that's not going to happen unless you go to D.C. and you walk up and down the hill and you're like, you know, America is missing this opportunity. Here's what it looks like. Let me paint you the picture of how this isn't going to be deprivation and cold rooms and small cars, right? Because that's what that's the fear. You're like, here's the unbelievable opportunity. You know, you may not know it, but solar and wind is now has arrived. Um, here's the legislation that's in the way from the rollout happening faster. So... Um, I'm actually working with Alex Lasky, who was a founder of Opower. You should have him here one day. He's great. Um, he's very politically connected, so I'm sort of bringing the the data. He's bringing you know deep knowledge of working with every utility in the country, um, and we're trying. You know, it's it's not an exclusive club. If anyone would like to come and volunteer their time, uh, walking up and down both sides of the aisle for the next three months, like this is the moment in history to do it. Mm. It's not going to happen if we don't go and if mm. we don't do it. As for other lab, you know, I have hired and there's half a dozen in the audience, really great people who don't need me to manage them and will probably be stoked when I'm not in the office, <laughs> you know, walking in with a crazy idea trying to disrupt them and they're going to continue working on, on the great technologies that they're working on. So I don't think, you know, other lab is 10 years old. It sort of can manage itself. We're going to start another lab Dublin this year mm. that we will do because the EU announced $100 billion dollars of work to on the, on their version of the New Deal, so you know we're going to be there to help them with that problem, the hundred billion dollar problem. Um, and uh, so you know, if we can stand up an office in Dublin without me, obviously the San Francisco office can survive for three months. Uh, and I think the you know the work is is worth trying. As to the optimism, I think it's a one in a million shot. But as I like to think of it at the moment, like on, you know, coming in under two degrees is one in a million. We really need to have either a miracle technology emerge that's not on the cards or we need this wartime effort. Um, but everything that seems impossible seems impossible until you make it inevitable. So we just got to collectively make it inevitable. Mm. So now's the moment. You're calling it rewiring America? Rewiringamerica.org. We don't even know how to take it a donation from you yet. <laughs> uh, we have a website, rewiringamerica.org. i got to practice. Pete Buttigieg said pete.com like three or four times last night. Mm. So rewiringamerica.org. Rewiring oh, org, sorry. Rewiringamerica. <laughs> See, this is why you have to I'm practice. Sorry, gotta practice. Uh, anyway, roughly that is, you know, providing technical and data and optimism and, and messaging support for the politicians of both sides of the aisle that want to do it. And it's about figuring out how to build this industrial coalition. And it's about providing support, quite frankly. I think the, you know, I've been an activist in my life. I've chained myself to my share of fences. I've Arrested twice. Never, yeah, never been charged. <laughs> never, ne never breathed in. No, never, never inhaled, never got charged. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but I, like the youth climate strike movement is like so exciting to me in the way they're doing it. And, you know, I think Extinction Rebellion has some, some warts, but like is also kind of amazing in its history. And uh, I think the organ, you know, the, the groundswell, those, they need good stories and good ideas because I think it always fails at, well, what do you, you know, so you've said we need a solution. What's your solution? I don't think it's the job of the 17-year-olds. Yeah, come on, Greta. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think she's amazing, but, like, I don't think she's overnight going to be like, here's all of this deep physics on what we need to do. Exactly. So that's our job. So, uh, like, you know, I feel like we're kind of also signing up to, to join the, the, the grounds for that, you know, to be the, to help the, the army on the, on the groundswell. Where will we, we rewire in America another lab be in five years? Five years, we will have 80% decarbonized America. Um, I'm going to give you some optimism that that is not actually completely insane. So the solar industry globally grew 25% last year. Electric vehicle industry grew 22% next year, last year. And the wind industry grew at 10 and a 10 and change. So if we continued those growth rates for those industries, um, this is a poll from the existing installed base, what year do you think we are producing enough electricity to completely power the world? Anyone want to guess? Just shout out a number. 2035? Super close. It's about 2037. So literally, if we just keep our feet on the gas for wind and solar at the growth rates that they're on... But not the gas. Not on the... (laughs) (laughs) We don't call it gas anymore. It's methane. You're not burning anything natural in your home. You're killing your children by burning methane and creating toxic... It's just got dark. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, you know... Well, I would like to demonise the natural gas industry, but then I'm going to make a plea that we all got to actually mm. figure out how to... We got to f- I think we're more likely to win if we flip those industries to our side. And I'm, mm. I'm worried that the democratic mm. messaging is so dark. But on the, on the positive side, you know, we would... We, on the trajectory you're on, normal, yes, that is a difficult growth rate to sustain, but by 2037, we would produce 10 terawatts of clean electricity, and that's enough to dig, you know, to completely power all the activities in the world and on the growth rate of electric vehicles is about 2034 where you'd be making 80 billion 80 80 million vehicles a year which is the global vehicle thing so if we doubled the rate right and that's how we did it for world war ii we're like okay how fast are we making bullets today and this was like in you know 1940 and someone would be like oh we're making 10 a day and we're like well we need you know 500,000 a day by this date so like okay well let's try and double tomorrow and let's try and double again the cool thing is you only have to double the rate at which we're doing wind and solar and EVs and you can get it done by 2030. So it's not insanely crazy. So my optimism is like, you know, we need one, one doubling of the rate and a lot of commitment and, and, it's, and it's conceivable. So I, and I just haven't heard enough people say it's, it's, it's doable, but it is doable. We just need to make it known that it's doable and make it known that it's, the, it's going to be the cheapest solution. We're going to lower every... I don't know why the Democrats went out there pitching how expensive their Green New Deals were. It's going to save every... You know, if you could take the cost of rooftop solar in Australia, the cost of heat pump heating in Japan and Germany, and the cost structure of electric vehicles in California, if there was a magic country, which was those three things, um, you would save... In Australia, you'd save the average family $2,000 a year. In America, probably 1000 bucks a year. So, you know, it's the, the future is just distributed mm. or something. Mm. But, like, we're, we're in range. Mm. We just got to get rid of the things that are in the way. Something I appreciate about your answer is that I asked you about rewiring America and other lab, and you answered representing the entire industry and the vision and future of the industry, which I think is testament and credit to who you are and what you're known for. It's not about you or this any one thing you created. It's about what you're ultimately trying to do. With that, no need to respond. Thank you. <laughs> with that, I think she just said, stop monologuing. <laughs> Gonna close with our high voltage round. Quick questions, very quick answers. Quick meaning like 10 seconds. If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Albatross, absolutely. Um, 
my God, do they fly incredibly. Although they land terribly, like super high aspect ratio. Um, and I once was lucky enough to sit on a hill in the Galapagos and watch albatross, like dozens of them flying. Um, and my wife and I still do the albatross mating thing. <laughs> she is going to kill me now. <laughs> uh, what inspires you? Um, uh, albatross? Uh, people? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. That's fine. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no Reading. History. Words. <laughs> okay. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, you had to, what would it be? Um, I actually really enjoy working with kids. Um, my, I've always thought about this question in terms of like, when I retire, what do I do when I retire? And my current fantasy is small shack on a beach running a, a, a money losing kite shop that teaches local kids how to make their own kites. Sounds awesome. Yeah, so I want something like that. Or uh, the other fantasy is, and this is when my wife and I are having our shared and retirement fantasy, it's a bookshop, coffee shop, bike shop, florist. Sounds, <laughs> sounds awesome. It's the four things that count, right? This is and, so funny. Yeah, this is just a continuation in, yeah. of your other lab work, but in a very kind of chill form. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> uh, what is the best investment you've ever made? My marriage. Good answer. <laughs> Not only good, but correct. Is that what you said? <laughs> what is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Oh, so many things. Um, oh, parenting would be easy. You thought it'd be easy? I didn't think it would be this hard. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. It's like... Um, like you don't, uh, I, I, you know, I think being a parent is like this front row seat at how just crazy weird humans are. <laughs> and like you just like from... You the, or the kids? The whole thing. I mean, starting with the birth process. What an absurd... <laughs> it's like, really? We all You're had to do... You're telling women. We all had to do that to come into the world. It's like, holy... <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. What was that question? Yeah. <laughs> Um, what's something you thought was true that oh, yeah. you no longer believe that parenting would be easy? Um, what is your worst trait? Uh, if I, on the rare occasion that I have one drink too many, I can talk too much and mansplain. <laughs> <laughs> That's good self-awareness. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be other than no mansplaining? Right now, I just think we need audaciousness and optimism and... Um, some hope and we've all collectively lost it. I'm actually kind of disappointed that as an industry, like we should actually be putting the fossil fuel industry on notice. It should, right now it should be like, you either join us right now or we will bankrupt you. If you join us in this way, you have some future. Like we have defeated you on all fronts. It's just not visible to you yet, right? And then we go and like, it's like now is the moment. Like we have crushed it. Like we're there. There's a few tiny little things that we still need to fix, but like, you know, the larger narrative of getting electricity cheaper than, than fossil fuels and finding alternatives to natural gas at the end uses and transportation, electric vehicles, like, you know, great job, everyone. <laughs> um, and let's translate that into optimism. I think we're all coming, still coming from a place of defeat instead of like, it's, it's time to declare victory and then mm. make it true. Mm. If there was just one person or two who were going to hear this podcast, who would you want them to be? Um, I'm just, you know, I'm not going to cry. <laughs> my mum and dad. Yeah. Well, maybe not my dad because he crashed the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Full circle to the tears. Uh, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They make the wrong thing. <laughs> if you really knew me, you would know... I, oh, I'm, if you really knew me, you'd know I have a terrible car habit. I hate cars. I hate what they've done to the world. I just love the machines. I really love the machines. <laughs> I own four cars. They're more than 250 years old between them. They're all beautiful and I can't get rid of them despite what my wife pleads me to do. And one of them gets less than 10 miles per gallon and I may love it the most. 
We should do like a confessions series yeah. on what it takes. Like, what do you, what do you, what's your guilty, guilty pleasure as yeah. it relates to 1961 Lincoln Continental suicide doors and a 430 cubic inch engine. I speak carburetor as a native tongue, so it's like I can't, mm. it's like I still have the muscle memory. It's really interesting to think that like we'll now have a generation of children that don't know what points and carburetors are, which is amazing. It's so good because they're horrible. Yeah, ch- ch- <laughs> children or adults. Um, success is? Knowing how to start said 61 Lincoln Continental <laughs> on the side of the road in Idaho <laughs> when the, you don't have feeler gauges and you only have a pack of cards. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. I have never made a single mistake in my life. (laughs) If the world knew me for one thing, it would be? Uh, I don't know. Hopefully, you're trying to bring some laughter. I think we have so many dry, boring conversations about technology and climate and gloom and doom. But like, you know... Let's stop taking ourselves seriously. Trying to bring a little bit of stop taking yourself seriously as a human being. You were born, it was a mess. You fart, it's a mess. You stink. Like, you know, where it's like, let's stop taking ourselves seriously and enjoy the weird, crazy human experience. And I think if we relaxed a little from that, maybe we would be prepared to make some mistakes and be more audacious. Last two questions I'm most proud of. Oh, my six-year-old daughter hand through a little... Cortado espresso cup for me, and it's just perfect. Aww. She's great. Yeah. Last question: To build a successful startup, what it takes is uh, knowing what. Yeah, getting yourself out of the way of all the smart people that come after you. All right, please give a huge round of applause. And that's a wrap for another episode of What It Takes. We want to thank Powerhouse for their continued partnership on this series. And although they are not doing the episodes live at their headquarters in Oakland, they are still recording episodes online. And the first uh, online episode is going to be on May 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's with Gia Schneider, the co-founder and CEO of Natel Energy. So we got a link there in the show notes and you can go there and sign up for the event. Of course, go over to Green Tech Media for show notes and pictures of our guests. And if you want to hear about what the entrepreneurs that we profile here are up to, GTM is covering a lot of their companies closely. So go to greentechmedia.com slash newsletters to get the news about all kinds of innovative companies straight to your inbox. And Also, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. The gang is back next week, and we will catch you then. I'm Stephen Lacey. We appreciate you being with us.